Hey, it's Ethan. As a love extremist, I'm always searching for the bridges that bring us closer together as humans. Over the course of this podcast, I've learned that when we face major life changes, they can become a connection point for deep inquiry, storytelling, and emotional growth. With that in mind, I'm devoting this current season of Love Extremist Radio to life changes, and specifically focusing on millennials engaging with a life-changing diagnosis. I'll connect with folks from all sides of the medical system to eke out the personal stories and lessons that show up when our bodies let us down. If you like what you hear, subscribe, post a review, and share it with a friend or two. Shoot me a DM at Ethan Lipsitz, that's E-T-H-A-N-L-I-P-S-I-T-Z, once you do, and I'll send you a sweet little piece of wearable art from the Love Extremist crew. Thanks for being here. Hello, hello. Hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm great. I'm great. How are you feeling? I'm good. I'm really good. Thank you for making time in the midst of a busy back-to-back workday seeing folks. Of course. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you're in the middle of it. Everyone, this is Dr. Jordana Jacobs, and I'm really excited to be talking to her. I'll shout out your bio, and then we'll jump right into it. Okay, sounds good. Dr. Jordana Jacobs is a clinical psychologist in private practice in New York City. Her training at Memorial Sloan Kettering, working with terminally ill cancer patients, her studies in northern India, and her Vipassana meditation practice inspired her research on the complex relationship between death awareness and love. This is my jam. Her dissertation entitled Till Death Do Us Part, The Effect of Mortality Salience on Satisfaction in Long-Term Romantic Relationships, specifically explored the ways in which priming for death has the potential to increase intimacy and partnerships. In addition to seeing patients, Dr. Jacobs gives presentations and leads retreats aimed towards helping people accept inevitable mortality so that they are able to live and love more fully. Yeah! (laughs) I couldn't think of a better person to be talking to in this moment ever, but your curiosity and expertise is exactly the landing place that I've gotten to over the years. And I always wonder, what is the story behind the story? Behind that bio, what got you to this place? How did you show up with this interest of love and death being so intertwined? There are a few ways I could answer that question. I The first thing that comes to mind for me, and this is going way back is my grandparents were Holocaust survivors and both of their families, almost everyone was killed. And when they came to the States, they had to start over again, just like many other survivors. Mm -hmm. And I grew up hearing endless stories about about death, which can be very scary to Mm -hmm. a kid. Um, But also the journey through recognizing the fragility of life and thus coming to a place of deeper, richer meaning and presence and love. It's really amazing to hear that you were brought into the family story transparently, because I know there's a lot of others who have families who have been through major traumas and genocide, like the Holocaust and others, 
where those stories are covered up or are not part of the narrative. Do you remember how old you were when you began hearing about your family history? It's such a good question and a really good point, actually, because I, the reality of it is that it, it wasn't totally transparently shared with right. me. It was in the water, hmm. almost. And it was through osmosis that I think I picked much of this up. I think my grandparents spoke about it. Their children, including my mother, really didn't like to talk about it. I think mm -hmm. because they had heard about it so much from their parents and there was so much vicarious trauma. And then for myself and my cousins, I really think we did our own investigation. I remember with my cousin Caroline rummaging through like my grandmother's old letters, anything that she brought with her from Poland. There was this like fascination actually in curiosity because it, there was something so deep and dark and terrifying actually in our family history that wasn't fully explained. And I often think that's the case for a third generation of the Holocaust survivors. It's up to us to deal with a lot of what's in our genes now. I think I carry a lot of that trauma in my body still. Mm -hmm. And because I'm close enough to it, but far enough away from it. I think I have this unique ability in this generation to really confront and do some of the work that my grandparents couldn't because they were too traumatized. And not even my mother couldn't because she was also traumatized by her parents and their experience. It's so interesting because there's this huge elephant in the family room <laughs> that you had uncovered with your cousin and also there's this love. And mm -hmm. I often talk about the connections between truth and love and how mm -hmm. being honest with ourselves and being honest with others is really a loving act, even though sometimes that's the most difficult or challenging or traumatizing thing to do. And I wonder your take on that. Do you think that that kind of transparency and honesty and openness is loving? Or do you think it's actually the loving thing is almost more protection and maybe a little more delicacy in how we handle our lived realities and our traumas and sharing them. So I, I would say this is a, a throwaway answer, but my first response is it depends, sure, obviously. But then my the secondary response to that, I say this often when I'm speaking or I'll talk to patients about this concept. My feeling is that we have to redefine true love as love that's based on the truth. Yep. <laughs> and the truth, in my opinion, and it really does tie into this family history for me, that we're all going to die. That's the, the truth. ultimate truth. <laughs> that's the ultimate truth that I do think gives way to true love. So how does that work? What are the mechanics of that in your lived experience? In my day to day? Yeah. How do you continue I, to stay yeah, in touch you gotta with be death? So, you got to be so disciplined. As you said it, I took a breath and I said, okay, I have to remember it in this very moment. Mm -hmm. I have to remember it in this very moment. You probably know about the app We Croak. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's a fun. And I actually don't use the app. I have other methods. But the idea of the app is that it's based on the Bhutanese principle that you have to remember five times a day 
that you're going to die in order to really live fully. And I think there's real truth to that. I think our defensive structure is set up so that we forget, you know, our because of our instinct for survival, yeah. we're sort of programmed to forget. And it takes so much work to remind yourself and not just remind yourself with an app. I found myself getting the alerts and then I turned them off. I wouldn't really pay attention. It, it takes so much conscious effort for me. And I think people find their own techniques if they're really dedicated to this work. But my morning meditation is extremely important mm -hmm. for me, mm -hmm. accessing spaces of timelessness but also practicing for me Vipassana meditation, which is a form of meditation that really focuses on the ever-changing nature of our bodies. I do that every morning. I have a gratitude practice that I find incredibly helpful and that I often center around how brief my time is with the people that I love. Some of the most profound experiences I've had have been with plant medicine and really investigating what happens after we die yeah. and dying in plant medicine ceremonies, at least psychically, mm -hmm. and what that brings up for me. Yeah, And I think I also do a lot of this work with patients. So I'm blessed and re incredibly fortunate to sit down seven hours a day with people who are, even if they're not consciously aware of it, often grappling with issues around mortality. Yeah, I want to get and into so that. And so it comes up a lot. Yeah, I want to get and into so, that. Yeah. <laughs> that. That kind of conversation that comes up for you in the professional practice, because that's so important. But I also just want to pause and kind of consider I'm full first off I'm fully on board with all the things you just said in terms of kind of the reminders and the consistent practice and having a practice that works for us is always individualized but there's a number of things that you said that I fully relate to I also have been thinking a lot as it goes back to this idea of truth and love of mm -hmm. coping mechanisms and the need for coping mechanisms mm -hmm. to survive. Yeah. So do people ever, this sometimes happens to me, where I'm someone who likes to go pretty deep pretty quick, go for the jugular. I can tell that. Like this conversation. <laughs> and, no surprise. But then I meet people and they're like, dude, what are you trying to talk about right now? Are you out of your mind? Like we just met. Or we don't, like, why are you asking me this? And yeah. I yeah. think like the tolerance for deep mortality related territory for a lot of us mm -hmm. is not mm -hmm. very high and I want to honor that and speak to that and so I wonder do people ever or I imagine you have a sensitivity to like the tolerance levels that people you're working with or friends have to this conversation and how do you tailor it basically based on your environment I had a clinical supervisor who happened to be a Zen monk and a palliative care specialist. Awesome. We worked at the Zen Center in New York and we were, he was supervising my clinical cases for about two years, which means that once a week I'd meet with him and talk to him about my patients and get his advice and expertise. And I certainly have struggled with that because if you go too deep, too fast, you get 
the bends or is bends when you come up too quickly. <laughs> yes. But you, regardless, if you go too deep, too fast, people's defensive structures really are bolstered, actually. They need to protect themselves. And that's the opposite of what you want in a therapeutic relationship. You want people to feel so safe that you can get to the most vulnerable places. Yeah. So his advice to me is always to read the room and then just go a hair below. Meet the patient where they are and go just a hair below. And do you I find that incredibly helpful? Does that work. practice still apply when you're with your friends? Or do you feel like you push them harder? I push my friends harder, but I also ha mostly have friends that are so hungry to go that deep that it's rarely a question. Yeah, I think it's interesting playing in the space now, just having started working around death with Camp Death and now this program Death Friends that I'm, I've been building out and thinking about how to communicate, especially with peers who are facing diagnoses. Mm -hmm. It feels like every week I'm meeting a new person specifically around brain cancer who oftentimes are in the early throes of this diagnosis. And I wonder if you have any advice or approaches to people. Do you ever work with folks our age who are just getting really challenging news, whether it's their own mortality they're facing or that of a loved one, I'm sure you do. Like, how do you start to dip your toes in? How do you start to broach that in a healthy mm -hmm. way? So I, you read in my bio that I worked at Memorial Sloan Kettering for a period of time. Yeah. When that was the case, I was, I'd say I was predominantly working with people who were a bit older, but in private practice, I've worked with a number of people who are in their, I'd say thirties. I think they were, all, they've all been in their thirties actually with cancer diagnoses mm -hmm. specifically, some with worse prognoses than others. Mm -hmm. And I would say, because I'm a psychologist, I'm not an oncologist. And I, so I often don't always know exactly what's going on medically Right. But my approach is typically one of, okay, so this was going to happen eventually. <laughs> this was going to happen eventually. It's happening earlier than you think. Whether or not death happens is one thing, which is inevitable. But the waking up to the fact that you will die mm -hmm. is most certainly happening now. You use the word salience. Yes, there's a mortality salient. It's becoming salient. Yeah. And I, the way I frame that is I say that has the potential to be an incredibly meaningful part of your life, that waking up. It will, it can change you and change you for the better. And some people never have that opportunity. Yeah. And in those who don't, do you think they're missing out? I can, I think I can only speak for myself when I say that my awareness of mortality and the more I am aware of it, the more I feel this way has deeply enriched my life and helped me love mm -hmm. more fully. Mm -hmm. I can say that the sages and the saints can say that Buddha can say that basically everyone that, that leads people spiritually says the same thing. Right. Yeah. It's this it. mirror. It's this mirror for us to reflect on and geolocate where we are 
in the span of a lifetime. And sometimes we have no idea, but just mm-hmm. in, in looking in the mirror, that, that snapping back. And I call them mortality checks. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's a major trauma. Sometimes it's self-induced or an exploration like with plant medicine or a, a trip. I'm curious if you've had, uh, you spoke to the kind of gradual acclimation, especially in terms of your family history and also your explorations with meditation and medicine. Have you had many mortality checks in your personal life where, whether it's someone close to you or yourself, where it's snapped quickly back to reality and clarity there? I have and I haven't. Like, I've lost grandparents. I've lost friends. I haven't experienced a major health crisis or a near-death experience personally. But that's why I feel I have to do this work (laughs) in a certain sense. Like, I'm somebody that is not willing to wait for something like that to happen to me to start living the best life possible for myself. There's a quote that I often refer to. It's by a man named John Foles. He says, death is rather like a certain kind of lecturer. You only really hear what's being said if you're sitting in the front row. (laughs) And so I'm trying to move up to the front row now rather than waiting to have that wake-up call. It's but This is such a unique thing, I find, though, especially amongst folks our age. I don't find a lot, unless they've had that mortality check, like I, I spoke about, and I'm so curious. You speak about your family history, but to actually intentionally go there and mm-hmm. to make this your practice and to make this your court, your keen interest, like, what are the... I don't know how, what are the motivators obviously yeah, like living you know, a better life again, but like how do we get so others this, to do this <laughs> so fair enough because I you know, the reality is that it's true that I think this has been in me and an interest of mine for a long time because of the holocaust mm-hmm. because I think that's in me and around me the genesis of my dissertation was that I was really interested in which is studying the relationship between love and death, as you said in in the bio, and which really sparked this ongoing work, is that I was really interested in how to make long-term relationships last. What do we need to do? And Esther Perel, who's a famous couples therapist, says fire needs air. She says that in order for passion and desire and intimacy and commitment to really thrive over time, you need to recognize that you don't actually have your partner, but that you could lose them Mm -hmm. at any time. They could leave you. You could get divorced. And I took that and I said, okay, what would the ultimate error be? And Uh, my answer to that was the recognition that you don't actually ever have anyone. That truth. And wanted to see in my dissertation if priming people for mortality, if reminding them that they were going to die would, in fact, increase relationship satisfaction in long-term partnerships. And it turns out it does. And it increases your sense of intimacy and connection with your romantic partner the more you think about losing them. (laughs) Which is wild. 
and also sometimes frustrating to me because <laughs> it's like, yeah. why do we have to consider the loss to motivate us to love more fiercely, love more deeply? And right. I guess I have two two kind of follow ups. The first is, how are you reminding people in this study uh, about their partner's mortality or their mm -hmm. own? What were mm -hmm. the ways of doing that? So there was a a classic mortality science prime where you ask somebody to write about what they think happens to their body when it, when they die. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's really, it, it's used in so many mortality science studies and mortality science literature is vast. So this is the most common mortality salience prime hmm. that's used. My favorite mortality science prime, and I didn't use it because it didn't really work in my study, but I do use it a lot in my talks is, and maybe we've talked about this, Ethan, I don't know, maybe a few years ago, but if you take a piece of paper and if you draw, and anyone listening is welcome to do this right now. If you take a piece of paper and you draw a horizontal across it with the beginning symbolizing your birth and the end symbolizing your death, you mm. then make a slash mark on that line where you think you are right now. Yep. And that alone just allows people to, to for a moment say, okay, this is finite. This is where I think I am, but it doesn't even matter really where you think you are. The whole point is that you're just aware that it's finite. Yeah, I did that. That it's limited. I, I did that with you and it was intense and wonderful and very <laughs> potent. So I love that exercise and I encourage everyone to do it. It's very simple, but also very profound and maybe does change day to day. I don't know. I, it's actually something that's very top of mind right now as I'm preparing to become a father in a few months. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Very excited. And also, Very, yeah. this is almost like a milestone I wasn't sure I was going to get to. Like mm. the prognosis mm -hmm. for me was you got this tumor. It's going to go away for a little while and then it'll come back. And that'll probably be the stronger version that will mm. likely end your life. And I made a distinctive choice not to let the prognosis be a guide for my choices in my life and to mm -hmm. operate with the intention of living a long, healthy life and not allowing this tumor to recur. That being said, some of those, some of that force isn't in my complete control. I'll, I want to do everything I can. And now recognizing and bringing a, a child into the universe, thinking about how to communicate to him that I have this thing and we all have this thing, right? Like as soon as we're born, our diagnosis or our prognosis right. is it's going to end. And so I guess, do you ever help people communicate to their kids? Or do you think about how you wish your family had communicated to you or how mm -hmm. they about that? So I, I have worked with some people around this. What comes to mind, especially if somebody, if a child is very young, is really just early on in this very Buddhist sense teaching about impermanence, mm -hmm. right? Just about how everything arises and passes away. Everything, and change is constant, right? It, death, you can start talking about death like you talk about change. Yeah, it really is. I like to talk about the breath as the metaphor mm -hmm. and every exhale is a death and every inhale is a birth. 
and right. it's it is constant. So I think just couching our mortality in the greater whole of everything instead of us thinking we're so unique and we should live on forever to really just say this is nature these are the rules this is how it works Mm. right across the board there's some sort of comfort and safety in that i listen to a lot of tara brock and she has this story that she often tells about a mother who was diagnosed with some form of cancer and had a year, they gave her a year, and she had a one-year-old child. And she said, Tara, now I don't have time to rush. Don't have time to rush. Wow. And I always loved that. Yeah. That is a really powerful kind of way of putting it, that slowing down... And almost distancing oneself from the concept of time even. What if we what if none of us had time to rush? What if we fully got that? That's what I'm working towards for myself with my patients, so that we can do that for as long live that way for as long as possible. Yeah. So I wanna go back to your research and your interests and get into love. I started Mm -hmm. this podcast in the first three seasons asking every guest what love means. And it Mm. feels like an important question in the context of your work and how you operate and define it. Yeah, how would you answer that question? It's such a big question. I'm sure you've gotten some really great answers. And it'd be actually very cool. To, maybe I'm just stalling right now, but I'm thinking how cool it would be to string together all of these people's answers about what love is to them because it's so clearly ineffable. I think about it a little bit like it's any words to describe it is like trace paper over reality or something. Like mm. we can only have some sort of vague outline. Two two things come to mind. So I'm cheating a little bit, but I love this quote from Teet Nhat Hanh. He says, love in such a way that the person you love feels free. Have you heard that one? I don't know. It doesn't come to mind, but I know Teet Nhat Hanh, and I, I love that sentiment. It, I I come back to that one all the time when I'm thinking about love and and feeling into, am I loving someone? Do they feel free with me? Do I feel free with someone else. So I think about that all the time. And then my other thought about love, less interpersonally and more love, mm-hmm. is really about the non-dual, maybe the merger of self and everything else. That when we feel separate, I think we're often in a place of fear. And I don't, I think it's hard for fear and love to exist in the same, fear and true love to exist in the same place. And that when we feel like we truly belong in the universe and are really one with the universe, I think fear really melts away and we just become love. I love both of those definitions and they work together because I think coming back to personal responsibility, personal sovereignty, actionable love, there is that ability to create belonging with others, to invite Mm -hmm. others in and also to find belonging within oneself, to get comfortable in our bodies 
and also to find freedom. And maybe those things uh, are one and the same, right? In creating belonging, we are actually accepting and embracing the freedom, the feelings of being free that each person, each individual, every living thing maybe has to a point. And Absolutely. It, it does. I often refer back to Bell Hooks and Eric Fromm, who talk about love being the belief in the spiritual growth of oneself or another, and growth being the key word there, like growth, change, freedom, kind of expression, something really potent in that ability to grow and believing in that and seeing that it's accepting change. It's accepting impermanence. Yeah. It's accepting yeah. freedom and not trying to grasp or pin down a person or thing to, to one fixed state. And so often we get caught up in, I think, expectations or desires for people to be of a way or to have a particular belief or to stick to their notions of whatever it may be and lose the fact that everything is so fluid and there's kind of these fixed points of birth, death, love. But even in those, there's practices, there's ongoing curiosities and explorations and we get caught up in fixed states, but the change Absolutely. is the constant. Yeah, change is the constant and all growth involves death. All change that we go through involves the letting go or loss of what once was. So when people are really stuck in a stagnant place and they're not moving, they're often really afraid to let go of what is no longer maybe serving them and move into sort of that new space. But it's often related to a fear of death and loss. Yeah. And I think about that in the context of evolution of friendships so often i think about love and friendship and how there's mm -hmm. we have such profound love that exists between friends mm, i'm so happy exist. you're bringing that up <laughs> why is that because i just i think that we don't talk about it enough i think we talk about romantic love excessively mm -hmm. in our culture and i think sometimes we forget about the intimacy of deep friendships that shape our lives sometimes equally, if not more, than oh, a yeah. romantic partner. Oh, yeah. And communities and the self-relationship. I mean, yeah, there's so many little areas of exploration. For a long time, I wrote off romantic love in the Love Extremist project mm -hmm. because it felt overplayed, which also has its pitfalls of that kind of framing. But I think in the context of friendship, there's also this change that occurs where we grow in different directions or we recognize sometimes friendships come to an end or dissolve mm -hmm. or evolve. And mm -hmm. I wonder about how your thoughts around processing the death of a friendship, the mm. loss or how that change and that letting go or the fear of losing a friendship versus the release and the freedom and allowing it to move on. If you were my patient, Ethan, I'd say, what makes you ask that question? Because <laughs> I've I, through the pandemic, there's been multiple close friends that I have evolved away from closeness with <laughs> in the most <laughs> diplomatic way of putting it. And that has been really challenging for me as someone who's always identified with community and friendship being a core tenant of my life and my joy and my being and recognizing that sometimes it's OK to allow a friendship to to move on or move in different directions and it mm -hmm. still hurts it's still hard there's still a grieving process and a death there. absolutely a death and like a real heartbreak yeah 
sometimes. And I think that's part of the problem with us not talking enough about friendship, intimacy, is that then we don't normalize friend breakups. We have this idea that friendship should be forever, but we have we have an awareness in romantic relationships that you date people and it doesn't work out. So you date someone else and mm-hmm. you keep trying until something hopefully sticks. But even that might not stick forever. But with friendship, because I don't think we talk about it enough, there's this ongoing assumption that if you become friends with someone, that's it. You're just friends with them for life. (laughs) Yeah. So I do think we just need to be talking about it more. We need to talk about friend breakups because they happen all the time and they can be excruciating. A metaphor that I use with patients often is around the solar system. I say, imagine you are the sun Hmm. and all the people in your life are at orbits. So you have people that are Mercury, you have people that are Earth, you have people Jupiter, Pluto, and not even in your solar system. And what happens, I think, in life is sometimes people are and sometimes they're Saturn and sometimes they can't even be in that solar system at all. And it's, you know, it's a process to figure out what closeness or what distance at a particular point in time allows the ecosystem of the solar system, maybe ecosystem isn't the right word, the balance of the solar system to remain at equilibrium, right? Mm. And there's some planets that are not meant to be that close to the sun at that particular (laughs) juncture. And it's also interesting you use the solar system analogy because I think about how intimate primary relationships, romantic relationships can often inform these shifts. That certainly Mm -hmm. has been the case for me where, you know, getting married and having a primary relationship has certainly shifted other relationships in in great ways and also sometimes in challenging ways. Um, Right. And I think there's many births and deaths that occur as we re- like move move the planets and i also this is just away from the planet metaphor but i do think that love is infinite but the amount of time and energy we have is finite and so when you do introduce a long-term partner a child a family into your life, you may be able to maintain how much love you have in your heart for as many of the people and for the community that you've built over many years. But it's not reasonable to think that you would have the same amount of time or resources to spread mm-hmm. around. And I think that's definitely an evolution that I'm thinking a lot about and mm-hmm. kind of the pre-grieving process of knowing that certain attentions are going to shift. So again, it's exactly what we're talking about. It's you are growing. You're literally growing a human. And that means that there will be death. Yep, definitely. Yes. Wow. I want to take you out of the therapy room for a moment. What are your numbing tactics? How do you numb out (laughs) from the reality of this intensity of being a human being what are the things that you do to yeah i was just talking about this with someone i am such a tv junkie i love television that's fantastic okay tell me more 
I have there. We all have vices. I'd say like my like TV is actually probably one of my biggest ones in part because I was saying it almost feels like I get to be a therapist, but I don't do any work because I'm just watching the stories passively as they unfold. And I'm captivated, I think, by stories, by human narrative. And I really very easily fall into sort of a blissed out, numb space watching some good TV. But it's in certain ways, it's, it mirrors the work that I do, except the work that I do, it, I'm just doing it in a much more active. Yeah. You're still, your brain is still working there. It's just a different. Yes. Diff- so are you the type of person where the TV's on in the background as soon as you get home? No. Okay. So you um, sit and you focus on a show. Yes. And, yes. Are, Currently and reality? For, like reality TV. Yeah. Are you in mm-hmm. on that game? Not. I, I, the only, I was able to get into Love is Blind because oh, yeah. that just felt, oh. but I'm really like, I'm watching for all mankind right now, and I, I'm just so excited to watch episode eight, you know, season one, episode eight, after my day today. Wow. <laughs> but I, I was about to share something, and I realized it would be a spoiler, so I won't. But I'll just say that there are especially space shows, space movies, if you couldn't tell by my solar system metaphor. At, but I do find that shows that have that are often around or that are around space often have these like deep existential themes in there and really help. They're often about love. They're often about death. They're often about our place in the cosmos, how small we really are, but how important our experience still is. So do you know about that feeling that astronauts get when they look back on earth, when they're up in space? Yeah. How much would you pay to 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 get a chance to ride in a spaceship and do that? Is that something that would be like, <laughs> is that a goal? Because it'll eventually become accessible, I'm sure. Yeah, it will eventually become a possibility. I don't know how much I would pay, but if I, if just from watching a TV show about astronauts looking at the Earth from the moon affects me the way it does, I can't imagine how I would feel. Uh, if it was real. But I also firmly believe that our minds are really like the best TV. (laughs) They're the best virtual reality. And our body, if we visualize something, our bodies don't really 100% know we're not actually there. If you're in a deep meditation or deep visualization, you can really feel so much of what it would be like to actually be in that situation. So now I'm like, maybe I should be meditating on imagining the seeing the earth from the moon. Yeah. Every day. Maybe I'll add that to my yeah. morning routine. Thanks, Go, go up there and see what it's like. <laughs> Tell me how it is. I wonder about that visualization practice f- for those who struggle or aren't even able. I know that there's certain kind of ways brains are structured in which being able to visualize is actually very difficult, if not impossible. Mm. And I understand that's actually becoming more common. And I also recognize the more reality we are fed or feed ourselves through the screen, oftentimes the harder it becomes. And as someone who loves TV, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts around how you practice visualization 
without the, or maybe with the influence of the screen? Never really thought about the screen as affecting the visualization process. What I will say, though, is I did a week-long ketamine psychotherapy training Mm. in I think it's the end of May into June. And for people that do have trouble visualizing or have trouble really letting go enough to suspend disbelief, maybe that's the overlap. With TV, you got to suspend a lot of disbelief. You got to really let go and surrender (laughs) to, I think, get the full effect of TV. (laughs) And some people have a hard time doing that with television. Some people have a hard time doing that with their imagination. And I did find, because as part of the ketamine training, you're all you're given ketamine multiple times to see what a patient would experience. And I did find, and I also observed a number of people going through ketamine treatment while I was there. So I found for myself, as well as for the 40 other people in the room that I watched go through it, that visualizing and really moving through experience in your mind as if it were real was much Hmm. it's much easier to surrender ketamine really is legal a and helps lower your defenses to the point where i think you can just play and imagine in a way that's really hard for some people to do while sober so yesterday or two days ago was eight eight And that is, in astrology, considered the Lion's Gate portal. Leo, the lion, it's Leo season. And Mm -hmm. so it's a very potent time to create a vision board. And my wife Michelle did one, and I did one. And I find the vision board exercise to be an applicable practice that's not necessarily all in the brain and in the eyes shut visualization, but also in front of you. Mm-hmm. Of course, using the screen in my case, but you could do it with collage or other things to almost map that out. Do you ever do vision boards or think about kind of future visioning that way? So I, I've never done a vision board, which I'm surprised by, given the friends that I have and the crowd I run with. Yeah. But what I do that I think is really powerful is I that I've only recently fully bought into, but is nightly manifestation in that I was taught this methodology where you have a journal and you divide the journal into four different sections. The first is self. The second is love. The third is career. And the fourth is family and friends. And each night, I write down a few things in each category as if it's already happened. So Mm. I might say, I am doing a great job on Ethan's podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You are. You're nailing it. (laughs) Or I might say, I have a wonderful dinner with my friend Anna tonight. Mm. Or I am confident. I am strong. My partner and I are connected deeply, whatever it is. And I, the way it was described to me, so it's, again, it's not a visualization, though I have no doubt that on some level I am visualizing actually as I'm writing each of these things to some Mm -hmm. degree. And the way it was described to me is if you think about just a sailboat without a sail, it's just being blown this way and that manifesting and really saying you want to happen as if it's happening is like putting up a sail and Mm. directing your core. And that really resonated for me. And I've found it to be a meaningful practice 
Sounds like intention setting. Which we do before journey work or before maybe going on a vacation or a meaningful dinner. But maybe it's important to do it in your day to day too. There's another ingredient there which merges nicely into the end of day writing journaling practice, which is this is I'm not waking up tomorrow. I am content or I am grateful for all of these things because tomorrow isn't promised. Right. And in in going to sleep with that sense of appreciation for maybe what has actually transpired in the day, not necessarily what you're visualizing, but that that also looking back and being able to eke out the celebrations of the day is another space. And I think a lot about that, about being in my 30s and getting to a place where I can say I've lived a full, beautiful, dynamic, incredible life Mm. and I don't want it to end. And if this is the last day, I'm okay. And I think to get there, it takes practice and work and intentionality and a lot of what we're talking about, visualization and consistent effort. And it's not always going to be the truth, but those days when it is are great days. So beautifully said. Yeah. To close this out, do you have, you're speaking to hundreds of millions of thousands of billions of people which is not a number, (laughs) but what do you want to tell them about taking care of their mental health? What do you want to tell them about looking after themselves, especially Mm. here in 2022 where we're sitting in these crazy times? I Sometimes if I've just read something, it's all I can think about. And I just read, have you ever heard of Richard Rohr? Yeah. So I just read The Naked Now. Have Mm. you read that one? I haven't. No. So I've read Falling Upward, which I loved and would recommend to anyone listening. The Naked Now, I also really loved. And it really, it's it's about presence. Again, they all say it. I'm not saying anything different. But the more present we can be in our life, the more pockets of presence we can find. I think the healthier and more content we are. And I think in our day-to-day world, we're bombarded by stimulus and by to-dos, by Twitter, uh, (laughs) by numbing out on TV. And if we're not really intentional about making sure we have time to just be, I think we get into real trouble. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, I think so much about just tuning in to whatever I think like siphoning the senses has been a powerful practice. And I think about getting to presence by focusing on what we're hearing or getting mm-hmm. out in nature and or just listening to listening for birds or listening for maybe it's an airplane in the sky or a distant siren and following that or just a smell. I'm, I'm looking, I'm in this padded room right now. I'm looking at the texture of the padding all over this room and thinking about how I want to run my fingers through it. These yeah. eggshell rugs on the wall. So yeah, uh, yeah anyway, just the sensual no, I mean, nature to piggyback like, on that. Totally. It's just, just like the baby that you'll have. Like a baby is experiencing the world primarily through their senses with very little frontal lobe activity. And so the more we can experience the world as a baby, the better. Yeah. Not while you're driving, but every other time. No. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Jordana, this has been such a treat. So glad we were able to make it happen today and uh, really value your work and your perspective on life and all the things you're up to 
Where is the best place for people to find you and maybe get in touch? Probably through my website. I'm at Dr. That's D-R. Jordana Jacobs.com. Dr. Jordana Jacobs.com. You are a legend. Thank you. For... <laughs> thank, you thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. This was so fun for me as well and stimulating and a lot of food for thought. Yes, I'm glad to hear for me too. And uh, looking forward to continuing the conversation soon. And uh, I hope the rest of your New York day is wonderful. Thank you. You too. I'm looking forward to connecting around all of your upcoming projects because they sound so meaningful. Thank you. Yours too. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Life Changes from Love Extremist Radio. Don't forget to share this episode and leave a review if it resonates. Your support helps us grow. Make sure you DM me at Ethan Lipsitz once you leave that review for some free goodies and sign up for our newsletter at www.ourlifechanges.co. Peace.